0: For a while in my office, I had this little white plastic cup. It was hidden behind the door, and it had these cards tucked inside. They were notes and reminders of what to do in case of a mass shooting. Like a lot of people, my employer required me to attend a seminar where the local police walked us through what they know about mass shooters and what officers would do if one came to our door. Pursue the killer first, help the wounded later. And they talked about what I should do in that scenario. Run, hide, fight. Yeah, you should. That's my fault. That's Katherine Schweit. And she's our single guest today because the fact that schools now do active shooter drills with this message is, as she says, her fault. Well, not totally, but at this point, it's now conventional wisdom from law enforcement, including at the FBI, where she helped create their active shooter program. Remember, run, hide, or fight. Run. Wherever you go, be aware of alternate exits. And then there's this whole industry of private security types, spreading the message and trainings like the one I went to and researchers trying to identify patterns for what makes a mass shooter in an effort to identify and treat them before they commit violence their teachers developing entire curriculum around educating their students about gun violence. State and local education leaders in Coleman will show off the newest safety device that will add a layer of protection. And then... What looks like a average whiteboard can be turned into an additional space within the classroom that can protect students and teachers in an active shooter situation. Security businesses stepping in to offer what they call solutions to schools which, by the way, they are doing because many lawmakers at this point have decided that they will not. This is Tim Burchett. He's a Republican congressman from Tennessee. This was him speaking to a reporter in the days after six people, including three nine-year-olds, were killed at Nashville's Covenant School.
1: Do you think there's any role for Congress
0: to play? Um, I, I don't see any real role that we could do other than mess things up, honestly. Thanks to the reporter who asked that question. So, in the meantime, for us and for our kids, it's run, hide, fight. So, today we're going to talk about what it's like to build a program that will mitigate disaster, how to explain what we're doing to kids, and what it's like to do that in the midst of political paralysis. I'm Audie Cornish. This is the assignment. You've probably seen Katherine Schweit on TV in the past few days.
2: I'm now joined by former FBI official Katherine Schweit. And And also with us is former FBI agent Katherine Schweit.
0: Katherine is the person you call when you're trying to make sense of a tragedy like this. She developed the FBI's active shooter program. And I saw her pop up on TV doing these quick explainers. But I wanted to know more about her. Like, what was the moment that led her to become an expert on this grim topic? There's always not an aha moment. Oh, there was. You're right. There was an aha moment. Tell me about it.
2: Awful indeed. CNN's uh, Ashley Banfield is now on the scene for us in uh, Newtown. Give our viewers a sense of what you're seeing and hearing.
1: Well, I'm in the same place, Wolf, that uh, the Connecticut Governor Dan Malloy
2: just updated us all. You
1: when the Sandy Hook massacre behind behind us, happened... We rarely call these shootings massacres, but Sandy Hook is often referred to as a massacre because there were, uh, as everybody always says, those babies. There's these tiny little kids. And I think the shock of that shooting, our personnel were on the ground working. Our SWAT team was there helping at Sandy Hook, clearing that room. It was so devastating to the country. And what we saw at Sandy Hook was, even though the Connecticut State Police were in charge, even though Newtown Police were there, It was a small community that was so devastated. They were so overwhelmed. And I swear, I feel like it was that day that the FBI director and Mr. Biden's office um, and Mr. Obama's office set their sights on, we're going to come up with a single voice in the federal system. We don't know how, but we're going to do it.
0: It's not unusual for a politician to say, we're going to do something, but then somewhere someone has to do it. And and that was you. So what was that conversation like? The president had made statements saying, uh, you know, they called it his now is the time speech. Yeah, this is President Obama.
2: Hi, everybody. This week, I announced a series of concrete steps we should take to protect our children and our communities from gun violence. He
1: directed the vice president to to put together a team of executives from the agencies. And I was the FBI's agency executive. So that may sound like, us oh, it's just another meeting. But we met every single day together, starting with conversations about what are we going to do to prevent these shootings from happening again? And we were literally arguing in the first days about what really needed to be done and what the problems were. And every day we'd get together in a room at the Department of Education and argue about, Ways to solve this problem, not having any idea whether it involved better police response or harder targets or training civilians to know what to do or getting rid of guns or
0: whatever. You know, it's interesting. There are so many places where mass shooting events have taken place, but you're saying these meetings happened at the Department of Education.
1: I know. That's because Sandy Hook was a school, right? And the Department of Education, I mean, of all the places, I think in retrospect, <laughs> I so agree with you because when we started, and I said we were arguing, the Department of Education people, when I brought run, hide, fight to them, which is something I'd love to tell you how that happened, they said, Yeah, we don't, we don't use words like that in schools. We can't use fight. And they wanted the conversation to end at that moment.
0: So it was like we don't like we're not talking about this,
1: right? I'm at the FBI, and we're like, yeah, there. It's a violent thing, David. You know, that's what I said to the executive who was who was my counterpart.
0: One of the interesting things about what we'll call this pivot in law enforcement, right, in the right. government that we're pinpointing to the Obama administration, is now becomes a whole world of people who are thinking about how to deal with active shooters and also how to deal with mass shootings in schools. So there are people such as yourself, law enforcement, but there's also people who have to come up with these trainings, so to speak. There are mental health professionals. There are parents thinking about this. And in recent years, we're seeing commercial Interest, right? Like tons. people coming up with right. say ballistic enforced windows, Doors, oh, windows, yeah, locks. right. Sure, there's a whole thing sprouting up for us to live with the reality of mass shootings, and in particular, mass shootings in schools. Yeah, is that true? Am I making that up?
1: No, you're not. Um, it's a whole other industry. So where there were people like after Sandy Hook, Chris Murphy, you know, uh, who's from uh, Connecticut.
0: This is the senator.
1: The senator, Chris Murphy, uh, wrote a book and and started advocating for things. And if you think back, right, um, Gabby Giffords, it's not like this was the first time anything happened. But this school incident created this cottage industry of we're going to find a better way to crack the nut in terms of keeping kids safe in school. And at the time... We didn't really know. Truthfully, the Department of Education at the time, their biggest uh, beef with me was, uh, you can't even tell me, Kate, if the uh,
0: number of shootings are increasing. Mm-hmm. Also, could you even tell them who a potential shooter was? No, not really. I mean,
1: we hadn't really, even at the FBI, we hadn't focused on this as a separate area. Now there's a whole you know, component at the FBI that does this. Of course, we had uh, behavioral uh, specialists who who look at shooters and why they shoot. But, you know, when, when everybody wants to buttonhole a potential shooter and say, I just need to see the profile, I just need to see the profile, the problem is there, there isn't a profile
0: here. Right, but we all watch TV and we think, like, criminal minds or whatever, like the exactly. FBI profilers will come in and say, it'll be an Probably this tall with this grievance, and that's the person you have to look out for. And that has not happened when it's come to active shooters, frankly, Uh, not really with schools either.
1: No, because I think the difference between that is a profile is things, demographics and factors about an individual that you can tell from standing far away from them. They're this tall or they have this kind of education. I've worked with the profilers on cases, uh, kidnapping cases and other cases. But when we're looking for this kind of a shooter, we're looking for individuals who could be you or me or anybody in the neighborhood, but they're different than you or me or anybody in the neighborhood because they're much more brittle. Emotionally. Emotionally, they're brittle. And so when they, for instance, have a grievance, uh, or even if it's a perceived grievance, but say they get fired on a Friday Some people go home and, you know, pour open a glass of wine and commiserate with their friends about the state of the economy. And others go home, uh, get the gun from their bureau or go out to their car and get the gun out of the glove box and come back in and kill people at the office.
0: So on your website, you have like a a little quiz, like which one of these things are you doing to keep your school safe? And one of them is like... Do you have any kind of threat assessment, right? Do you have a threat assessment team? Um, Another one is, uh, do you have a way for your students or anyone to basically report signs of someone who's like under emotional distress, et cetera? Mm -hmm. You also have a question, which is, do you run uh, drills and training several times a year to give faculty and staff confidence to respond immediately during an emergency? Let's talk about this several times a year.
1: Mm -hmm. Every school runs fire drills twice a year. We haven't lost a child to a fire since the 1950s in the United States, but we run a couple fire drills every year, usually when the weather's nice.
0: You also say, you give some suggestions, and you say, well, maybe a school resource officer can oversee running non-scary but informative drills three times a year for students and staff. Now, I've done one of these in in a workplace. It was scary, Right, because that's... What's a non-scary version for kids?
1: So I think that I I liken this right to what I was just saying about a fire. You know what a fire is going to do. You know how devastating it can be. When you get on the plane, somebody tells you in a big metal tube, okay, if the oxygen disappears, this is going to drop down and you need to know how to put this mask over your face and put yours over before you help your child. And by the way, reach under your seat and grab your cushion because when we go into the water... Those are all really scary things, but we have normalized those because we just do them as a matter of routine now. We listen to them. A lot of people sit on the plane and don't listen to any of it, but they've integrated into their brain, and that's what we need to do is to take this, just like tornado drills and fire drills, this type of drills and training needs to just be part of the safety training of the school. It doesn't have to be some separate scary training. It just has to be safety training.
0: No, but... The reason why I'm saying that is because it does feel separate and scary. So, for instance, with this, um, the thing I hear most commonly now is run, hide, fight.
1: Yeah, you should. That's good to know. That's my fault.
0: Tell me about that. Where'd it come from?
1: So the City of Houston Mayor's Office developed Run, Hide, Fight on a DHS grant in the summer, just before Sandy Hook, they released that six-minute film and training in multiple languages and put it up on the city of uh, Houston mayor's office website. And when we first started meeting at the Department of Education and arguing about what we should do or shouldn't do, the Department of Education said, we're not going to talk about this. It's too scary. And that is going to... Which
0: part did they find scary?
1: All the concept of just uh, talking about shootings in schools at all. Oh, okay. And we don't think this is a good thing. And I said, but they said we should do a training film. I, I don't know what that meant. And I said, well, okay, the FBI has a television studio we can do a training film and then I know how much that costs and how long it takes so you know I went home and did my best internet search like everybody and I ran across this six-minute film that had just been released by the city of Houston
2: and if you find yourself facing an active shooter there are three key things you need to remember to survive
0: it's get out right it's run and then hide and then fight Which is like grab something, right. ambush, try and actually engage somebody who, let's face it, has spent a lot of time thinking about how they're going to attack you. Right. And you've spent very little time thinking about how you're going to fight back. Um, so I'm trying to picture teaching this to my five-year-old.
1: Okay, so wait. So let's back up, too, because I think, you know, that's, that's great. But now we're talking about a five-year-old. So first, let's just talk about the adults in the room, right? Because the adults have to understand it first. And the concept behind run, hide, fight, this is what people do at scenes. This isn't a suggested idea of what might happen. These are the actions that happen. You know, run if you can, hide if you must, and fight if, if your life depends on it. And so the training that goes along with it explains the nuances of that. And there have been other organizations that have Uh, Private companies, right, who've developed training that's similar. All the training focuses on these three actions.
0: But there is a concern people have, let's say, about mental health, right? I mean, when I kind of went down the rabbit hole on this, there there were some um, researchers who put out something, and uh, I think I saw it on nature.com. I'll give you the proper citation in a minute. But basically they said uh, they studied people's social media posts kind of before right, and after. Afterwards. You've heard of this. Absolutely. And I, I just want to say this for the audience. They found that school shooter drills can negatively impact the well-being of school communities over prolonged periods of time, um, that students were texting their parents, uh, praying, crying, you know, really talking about breaking down in tears, Mm -hmm. you know, during recess. That's kind of quotes from some of the teachers. And then also having downright fear and panic attacks when, for instance, the fire alarm goes off. You talked about us being used to the fire drills. Um, It isn't, it's no small thing to have this.
1: No, it isn't and I don't make light of it at
0: all. Like was that educator right?
1: But no, but that educator is right, but here's the difference. Um look at the data of that study and that study was done to help us inform us, I mean in general, about how to do a better job in training. I think the there was there absolutely was initial training that was People running through hallways with long guns in their arms and yelling at students and fake blood everywhere and no notice drills and those are still going on.
0: No, no notice sh- meaning surprise, like surprise, surprise. We're all in an active shooter drill and doing that like in a school.
1: Right, the early training that was done with the community as opposed to law enforcement going out in the woods and doing their SWAT training. The early training that was done by private companies was, uh, and some law enforcement was really based on this idea of we're going to let everybody know how scary it is. And that was never ever the training that was developed by the FBI. And that's one of the reasons why we had to create, we worked with FEMA to create civilian training that was not at all and anything like that.
0: Right. Because we also don't need help knowing that it's scary. Exactly. Like we all know that it's scary. <laughs> well,
1: we don't teach kids about car accidents by showing them body parts in the street, right? We don't teach adults about plane safety by having them have simulated crashes into the water. Training where you scare people is not effective training. All you do is scare them. You don't empower them.
0: So let's go back to non-scary informative, right, which is your goal and my five-year-old who just entered kindergarten. And I'm, right. I'm, I'm very ner- nervous, frankly, you know, uh, about this whole conversation and <laughs> sure. also explaining to him, right, when he comes home from school after the first day of probably experiencing something like this. So how do you want schools to approach it? What makes sense at this point in time based on what we know? All right,
1: so how do you talk to kids? Different question, right? How do you talk to kids? Well, first of all, you're a parent. You know how to talk to your kids. And you tell your kids, and teachers are the same way, right? Teachers are trained to talk to the children at the age they are. So when you're a teacher of a kindergartner, you're not saying, a scary guy's gonna come in here with a gun, so we have to do this. You're saying, sometimes bad people um, might be around the building and we have to be careful and we have to be quiet. And in one of the books, one of the elementary school books that I found that was so cute uh, that that I think every school should have in their library and every parent should own is, is a story about that the circus train came by and the circus animals got out of the train and they're looking for lunch and they want peanut butter sandwiches. So the kids better stay in their classrooms and stay quiet so the animals don't come to eat their peanut butter sandwiches. All you're teaching a child at that age is to listen, to follow directions, and to be quiet when they need to be. That's it. The other thing about training kids is you got to lead by what they know. I think I hear parents all the time say, oh, I don't want to talk to my kids about that. It's too scary. Well, kids are talking about it. They're talking about it amongst themselves. Talk to a group of fourth graders and ask what, if they know anything about what, what school shootings and active shooters are. They do So I think it's naive of parents right now to say, oh, I can't talk to my kids about that. It scares me. And, and you know what? Let me tell you something else about that. My daughter is a middle school teacher. And uh, I asked her early on when I was working on uh, on some stuff. I said, what do you think uh, about the parents who say it's too scary to talk about it with their kids? And she said, I would tell them, park your neuroses someplace else because that's you. Your kids aren't scared of it. They're scared of a lack of information, and they're making it up on their own. So why don't you help
0: them out by having a conversation with them about it? The reluctance is that school is, for lack of a better term, A safe space like we pretend that school is a bubble similar to home if you believe home is safe school is also safe and it just it feels like generationally we're like nope not an option for you not an option for this generation not safe yeah but what is that like what do you mean for you what is it like
1: for me to live this way I want to get off this bus. Uh, I just haven't found a way to do it. I mean, I retired from the FBI five years ago, and the shootings continue to increase.
0: I'm going to say something that I I don't want you to think I'm putting on you. I just don't know another way to ask it. That's all right. But do you have moments where you're like, did I fail?
1: Oh, yeah. Sure, I do. I do feel like... As much as we did, I I couldn't get enough. I'm bailing water out of this ship as fast as I can, and it's still sinking. I feel a a sense of responsibility to share what I've learned. I mean, that's why I wrote the book, thinking, well, that's great, I can step away. Um, And that didn't work.
0: More of my conversation with Katherine Schweit in a moment.
2: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Every week on Talk Easy with Sam Fragoso, I invite an artist, writer, or politician to come to the table and speak from the heart in ways you probably haven't heard from them before. Some of my favorites are with Tom Hanks, Questlove, and Kate Blanchett. In recent weeks, I had talked to actor Dan Levy, director Ava DuVernay, and the editor of The New Yorker, David Remnick. You can listen to Talk Easy on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: We've talked a lot about the during, the people who are trying to kind of mitigate um, the casualties. Uh, Awful to use that term. Um,
1: That's the reality of it. It is mitigating the casualties.
0: When it comes to prevention, where is that in this?
1: There is tons of prevention uh, capabilities here. If you understand what you're looking for, you have to know what you're looking for. An individual who is on a pathway to violence, that's exactly what we call it, they're on this pathway to violence. Um, Everybody in our industry understands this, um, behavioralists understand that these are planned events and an individual moves on this pathway from, I'm going to create this type of violence and then they begin to plan and prepare And these planning and preparation are visual, oral things that are done. They leak their intent to do it to other people. In the FBI research of 63 shooters who committed mass violence, committed active shooters, 92% of them who were students leaked to peers.
0: And we should say, when we say leaked to peers, that's quite literally telling another kid, maybe saying something on social media, saying something online. But they, like, tell someone, I'd really like to do X or Y.
1: Right. It's not a a subtle thing. It's something that was enough that the person who heard it was disturbed about it.
0: And so as part of the prevention conversation with young people, what do you do when you hear that? Because I know... And I, when I was in middle school, we heard kids say all kinds of things, right? You don't necessarily think you're going to go and tell someone they might be, they might become. Is that what prevention is for young kids or teens? Like, how, is that part of it? You, you can train young people about it because
1: the prevention aspect is looking for behaviors of concern. So when it comes to a 17-year-old, we want the leakage when a kid is posting something online or texting to somebody. We want, the, we want somebody immediately to report that to somebody else and um, report that to the police and to the principal and to the parents and the trusted adult and to the anonymous tip lines. But when a child is seven or eight, what, are, what do we want to teach them? The same kinds of things that we talk about with regard to body autonomy stranger danger we teach very carefully our children to protect their own physical self to not allow somebody to ab- abduct them on the street just
0: the idea that you don't have to go past there are people who do bad things but with kids one of the realities they have is as you said it might be another student it's not always another right. student but oh, one day yes. it might be another student and kids say all kinds of things all the time you know i mean i think about the plot of heathers pretty much involves blowing up the school like we're asking young people to look at each other and say oh but you're going to go a little farther than everyone else and i should say something no. and obviously there's some reluctance because we know about the leakage but we don't have enough advance notice to prevent things
1: you know Audie, i i i again I, I respectfully disagree i
0: um bring it you know, Because Because I need to understand this, you know. Because
1: I think that, you know, um, we're asking, if you put on a child, uh, on somebody who's younger, even on an adult, um, you know, I can't put into your brain what I can do from an analysis standpoint on thinking if somebody is a threat. I've spent my career, 20 years in the FBI, years before and after, determining whether something is a threat and whether something is dangerous. I can't, you can't do that as an adult. We certainly can't ask a child to do that. All we're asking you to do as an adult is tell somebody what you hear or see that seems like get your spidey senses up. It gets the hair on the back of your neck up. Somebody says something to you and it seems off. We're asking children to do the same thing that they would, you would want them to do if they went over to their friend's house and something made them uncomfortable. You want them to know that you're, it's okay to say something. And I get it. And a five-year-old, you're, we're probably not going to get a lot of five-year-olds. You know, I live here in Virginia where a six-year-old shot uh, the teacher. And the student who did the shooting showed another six-year-old, I think it was six, the gun outside on the playground and said, don't tell anybody. And the kid, I think the kid qu- went crying to somebody and did tell somebody, but was afraid, you know, yeah. that, that he would get in trouble. And that, we aren't gonna have a lot of seven-year-olds showing guns to somebody. It's gonna be more like seven-year-olds saying things. I'm just saying, if you see something, say something. It is the same, if you see something, say something. But what I see it is a gap between see something and say something. We haven't taught people what to look for and then who to tell it to when it comes to these kinds of shootings.
0: The gap you're talking about, right? The gap between I see something and I say something, and then what does someone even do with that information? It just sounds like we've got to build up an infrastructure for something that we all had hoped wouldn't be a long-term problem.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. And, you know, when you ask me, um, you know, how do I feel about working on this? I feel like I am dragging chains behind me, trying to get people to build up that infrastructure because they're chains I don't want to drag anymore. But geez, nobody else, you know, I feel like sometimes if I don't drag my part of it, you know, nobody else will be there. It's like a big tug of war game because there's people on the other side of tug of war saying, we don't want to talk about this. We want to deny it. We want to pretend it's never going to happen. We want to go back and live in the 50s. We want to go back and live in the 60s. When this didn't happen and when we didn't have to worry about our kids walking to school every day and we don't live in that world anymore. So it would be better if we came up with a system where we live today and try to protect our kids.
0: But at the same time, you're hearing more and more young people because of social media. They speak out. Right. Um, and they're expressing a kind of frustration helplessness, some of them encountering more than one mass shooting incident in sure. their personal history. It's, it's rare, but not rare, if that makes sense. I mean, but there are more shootings. I mean, that's the reality yeah, of it. Because you now could have a teacher who's also had this same experience. Like that's how long it's been.
1: My undergraduate is in Michigan State University, 45,000 students. They had eight students shot a few weeks ago, three of them killed. So now 45,000 students at Michigan State University are going to be able to say they had a shooting on our campus. I think it's a it's a false narrative to say that we can um, create a world where we go backwards and nobody's interacting with this. But what
0: do you say to kids then, right? I mean, if they're feeling, and teachers, students and teachers, et cetera, just uh, they're feeling helplessness. They're feeling frustration. Maybe they feel like culturally they're being given up on, as you said, that like, now it's just living with it. They don't, they don't have another option. It's live with it, mitigate it, all this other stuff.
1: We, you, know, I, I, you know what I hear in your voice, Audi, is, is, the, is a helplessness and a frustration and a futility. That's what I hear. And you can't work as a prosecutor and as an FBI agent and feel that way. You have to feel like everything you do makes things better uh, because if you weren't there, it'd be worse. I don't say this is a great situation. I say this is the situation we're in. I didn't create this situation, right? But I can make it better. People who talk to their kids, like my niece, uh, Megan, who talks to her kids and empowers them, my daughter, who's a middle school teacher, who empowers herself and her kids and the teachers around her to know that they're not going to let violence take over their world, it, it, it's good, because the violence is here. We, You know, f- 45,000 people a year die, die by firearms violence. Less than one-half of one percent, if even that, are from this kind of shooting. Let's talk about it, and let's stop being so afraid of it. That's the way we stop the killing.
0: You said something earlier about hearing helplessness in my voice. Absolutely, as a journalist, Each and every time I report on one of these things, which technically I've been doing since high school, since I was in high school in the late 90s, and the conversation falls in the same beats, in the same ruts, in the same order. And you do often feel helpless because, as you said with Sandy Hook, and that was the turning point for me as well, If a room full of kindergartners doesn't make anyone think anything should be done without falling into those same arguments, well, then what could I possibly say? So you are hearing that. You know, I will cop to that 100%. Well,
1: that's okay, right? I mean, that's the I mean, no, not
0: really. (laughs) That's that's when you're like, maybe I should get out of the business. But you know what I'm saying? Like, you you detected something that is real, which is the fatigue that I feel and that I think to some extent possibly... citizens feel
1: and it's the same reason that you know i we do our podcast who does a podcast called stop the killing right how depressing is that but in fact it's very empowering our listeners are like it's very empowering and you know all we can do in in my mind is continue to empower people so that we regain control of this situation when it comes to gun violence and i'm really dedicated to that mission i feel like we just have to do that
0: Well, keep doing what you're doing, and I hope one day you don't have to do it anymore. Me too. Thanks very much for the time, Audie. Catherine Schweit. She established the FBI's active shooter program. She's also the author of a book called Stop the Killing, How to End the Mass Shooting Crisis. The Assignment is a production of CNN Audio. Our producers are Madeline Thompson, Jennifer Lai, Lori Gallaretta, Carla Javier, and Dan Bloom. Our associate producers are Ahsoke Samuel and Allison Park. Our senior producers are Matt Martinez and Haley Thomas. Dan DeZula is our technical director. Steve Lichty is our executive producer. Special thanks to Katie Hinman and to music composer Emery Dobbins. I'm Audie Cornish. Thank you for listening.